Good evening. Welcome to Spin Class, everyone. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JMNAM.org, part of the Thursday night extravaganza here. And this week, our show is actually sponsored by the Community First Political Action Committee, Community First, headed by Rabbi Nachman Kahler of Borough Park, who is there, started an organization to educate and make the public more aware of politics going around, very much like this show is trying to do. So we welcome that sponsorship, and we welcome Community First as a supporter of the show. Very much looking forward to educating, especially this week, the listeners out there with what's going on in the political world. And it is a new year, everyone, a new solar year, as it were. And we are here live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. ZK is here in the control booth taking care of things. And we have a great lineup for the political junkie in you this evening. So we'll get to that. We have Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, as well as Josh Nathan Cases, a political reporter and staff writer for The Forward, and some other special guests that will be joining us. But let's go to a couple headlines before we get to our guests and before we get to the commentary. Before we take it behind the headlines, let's talk about the headlines and what's been going on in our political world. I imagine that many of you are aware of certain things that happened. And of course, we actually talked about the fiscal cliff for several weeks prior to it happening on January 1st. And technically, it did happen. We actually got there. We actually went over before Congress was actually ready to fix it. In fact, they didn't really fix it. They didn't really take care of it. They kind of punted yet again. What they did was went ahead and ensured that 98% of Americans would not see higher taxes. Good. What they didn't do was control spending. In fact, they increased spending. So now we're looking at a $16 trillion, trillion, trillion. I'll just keep saying that because maybe it'll sink in. $16 trillion deficit. And we added to our spending. We added to our spending, folks, in that bill that they passed. So now two months from now, Congress is going to go ahead and they're going to finally get their arms around the spending. They're going to finally decide, okay, now we're going to control stuff. Now we're going ahead and we are going to go ahead and corral this endless trillions of dollars of spending that's uh, been plaguing this company, uh, this country for so long. So let's see what will happen. What do you think out there. And I like your comments. Last week, unfortunately, we ran out of time, as uh, sometimes we do. But of course, we're a little bit new at this. We ran out of time a little bit. We didn't get to some of the questions. But Michael at NahumSiegel.com, hopefully you'll chime in with your thoughts on the cliff and everything else out there. But let's talk about two months from now, we will have what's known as the sequester will come due. Of course, uh, Congress just keeps pushing everything down the road kicking the can. I It's cliche. I don't love it because everybody else says it. If I had thought of it myself, I would have continued to use it. But the kicking that can down the road, that can must be in really bad shape at this point. 
And do we really think that two months from now, somehow Congress is going to get their act together and they're going to go ahead and try and control this train wreck that is the fiscal situation of the United States? And it's going to be a little bit rough for the Obama administration. And I'll tell you why. Number one, Tim Geithner has announced that he's on his way out. Who will replace him as Treasury Secretary, a key position for the White House, even though this White House is famously centralized in its decision-making? A lot of things flow through the White House. Tim Geithner was definitely a frontman when it came to fiscal and monetary policy. And he's on the way out. And, of course, every second term has a certain amount of transition. We know Hillary Clinton is on the way out. So that itself could be further distraction. And there'll be a new defense secretary as well. We don't know who that might be. So there's a lot of distractions going on. And somehow they got to figure out how to sort through this mess. I know I focus on it a lot, but if you think about it, when we all want something for government, we all want government to be effective. In fact, we, we send people to Washington in order so that they should represent us and represent our interests, and they can't come to any type of agreement. It's just incredible, and I don't want to single out the administration for blame. The Republicans are at war with themselves. As we saw today, Speaker Boehner did get reelected as Speaker. He will have another term, but it was close. He got 220 votes, not very much above the bare minimum. And several, quite a few Republicans didn't vote for him. Now, who knows? Maybe if it was closer, they would have voted for him. Really hard to say, but it, this is a guy who over the last couple of weeks has really been chopped off at the knees by his own conference. In fact, his own majority leader, Eric Cantor and his number three, Representative McCarthy, did not vote for the fiscal cliff deal. In fact, most Republicans didn't vote for the fiscal cliff deal, even though their leader had negotiated it. This is just a very curious situation, folks. It's really, really odd. I can't explain it. I know that I'm supposed to sit here and kind of say to everybody, really, you know, this is what's going on. This is exactly what it is. And I can, you know, you can feel comfortable because we know where we're going with this. I'll be honest right now. I can't figure it out. So that's why we have people on there kind of helping us out, letting us know what a lot of these machinations, what a lot of this political intrigue, the palace intrigue really means and what it means for us. Additionally, in the Congress today, there were quite a few new members that were sworn in, members of the Senate, members of the U.S. House of Representatives, quite a few from New York. And we had a couple firsts. We had the first Hindu member of Congress from Hawaii. I think we had the first Buddhist member of Congress also from Hawaii. A lot of firsts out there. We also had Mark Kirk, who had a debilitating stroke a year ago. And Mark Kirk walked up the U.S. Capitol steps, and he has essentially, or it seems to be, fully been rehabilitated and has rejoined his colleagues in the U.S. Senate. So kudos for him, a tremendous supporter of our community, tremendous supporter of Israel, a U.S. military veteran, 
and uh, certainly deserves all our support. Senator from Illinois, Mark Kirk, has rejoined the Senate today after being out. So, folks, all I could say is we're in a very, very interesting time. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me a little bit that we are kind of looking at the we're kind of looking already at the 2014 elections. That's what a lot of uh, a lot of Republicans are probably sitting there and saying, oh, I can't believe what happened in 2012. We, we weren't that successful. But let's wait to 2014. Let's kind of wait out the clock. Let's kind of get our, you know, try and figure out a way to keep these to keep the president from having any success. And we can, you know, kind of uh, figure out a way to subvert subvert the political, any political success that the president might have in order so that they can kind of have a repeat of 2010 and 2014. And then again, of course, there's 2016, where people are now looking at the presidential election. They're potentially looking at to see how they can jockey for position. We saw some interesting no votes on the fiscal cliff. Senator Marco Rubio, Florida, a leading presidential contender, voted against it. So, folks, there's a lot of curious things out there. I have to say one thing that I'm impressed with, and I'll just give you a quick observation. And uh, perhaps perhaps we'll repeat this question a little bit for, for our first guest, is that Joe Biden, who, you know, is a little bit ridiculed out there. People think he, you know, he says things off the... Uh, off the reservation, off message every so often. But this guy is a real asset to the president. He swooped in when negotiations looked like they were going nowhere, huddled with his former Senate colleagues, and hammered out a deal. We may not like that deal. We may think, bad deal, bad deal for the country, bad deal for everything. You might not like it. But in the end, things were going nowhere fast. Nothing was happening that really would have led to anything coming about on December 31st, let alone January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and beyond. So somehow we've managed to hammer out something, and that something, much to the distaste, obviously, of many of the House Republicans, much to the distaste of conservatives and liberals out there, much to the distaste of a lot of people out there, that's something is a little bit of a band-aid as we go forward. But just remember, we're headed not not just for a sequester crisis, which means that we have to go ahead and uh, get ahead of many spending cuts. We're also headed for a debt ceiling crisis yet again, where the United States has borrowed so much money that we are going to be legally prohibited from borrowing anymore. And, of course, you know what happens when you go ahead and don't start making your payments on that mortgage, on that car, on the credit cards, well, the other people start going at, coming after you. And it would be a shame for China to come ahead and uh, to go ahead and repossess uh, the United States and you know, take away the capital. Maybe they'll start with the Washington Monument or something like that. So let's hope that that doesn't happen. Let's hope that there can be a little more common sense in D.C. And let's hope that we can somehow get ahead of that and that a lot of people will see this deal as being a thing 
as a win-win situation where a lot of parties didn't get everything they wanted, but somehow they won a little bit. And then, unfortunately, and it definitely needs to be mentioned, was that Sandy debacle where the Speaker went ahead and Speaker of the House went ahead and pulled the relief package for Hurricane Sandy from a vote, did not allow the Congress to vote on it, and now it needs to be voted by both houses coming starting tomorrow. They'll start doing pieces of it. I, Folks, I don't know. I mean, when, when other regions of the country were in trouble, the whole country seemed to come together and stepped up for them. Somehow that didn't happen here, and it seems that the atmosphere is so poisonous that things that are really right on their face and that really should be done aren't getting done and are falling victim to the partisan fighting. So I want to welcome Ben Smith to the program. Ben Smith is the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and before that was at Politico, before that was at the Daily News, where he started a now-famous blog called The Daily Politics. Before that, there was many other, there were many other points on your journey, Ben. Would that be accurate? Yeah, we've known each other a long time, Michael. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. That's right. Ben actually is a New Yorker and a Brooklynite. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Ah, from, exactly. So that will be definitely a familiar place for many of our listenership, Ben. I hope so. Ben, tell us about BuzzFeed a little bit. Give a quick plug. Um, we're the, uh, we're the first real, what we, we think of ourselves as the first true social publisher, you know, the idea that if you're a news junkie, the place, particularly if you're a news junkie, and I think that's a lot of people listening to this show, that you're going to Twitter first to get your news, not to a website, and that we want to write stories that you're going to want to share on Twitter, that you're going to Facebook for lots of other sorts of things, that we want to write the kind of stories people will read and share on Facebook, and that that's really where people are spending their time on the internet and how news and content travel. So people don't go to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and ABC News first? They go to BuzzFeed? No, they go to Twitter. Okay. If they go to Twitter, hopefully they'll see lots of great BuzzFeed reporting on politics. That's what they care about is politics or tech. So you are dominating the Twitterverse, or your yeah. plan is to dominate the Twitterverse? I think we're doing a pretty good job in the Twitterverse, and I think, we, I mean, I think you know, if you're particularly a political news junkie, the Twitterverse is the conversation. Okay. So, Ben, tell us about politics, since you know pretty much everything that I've learned about politics, uh, much of it, I'd say, a good percentage of it comes from Ben Smith feeds. Uh, John Boehner reelected. Does didn't you get the feeling that most of the conference doesn't like him? Yeah, but there was there was just nobody to step up to challenge him. I mean, I think there were conservatives, really led by Eric Cantor, who put a lot of distance between themselves and John Boehner. But I mean, one of my colleagues was joking that the worst thing Boehner could have done was, you know, halfway through that vote, be like, "All right, Eric, it's all yours. Take it away. You can be speaker now." I mean, it's, there's sort of a poison chalice element to it because, particularly for the Republican leadership, you know, ultimately you got to make a deal. They are playing a weaker hand. Democrats control the, control the Senate and the White House. The path that deal, as Boehner showed last night, is by breaking with tradition and showing a kind of weakness and, you know, passing legislation that requires Democratic votes as well as Republican votes. Um, well, that tradition is only a couple years old. That's the well, Hastert rule, and Hastert was Hastert rule. And Hastert broke it at times, but the reason for the Hastert rule is because the it's it's really about the strength of the leader. It's not a sort of a partisan thing exactly. It's a legislative thing. It's about the leader saying, "I can bring my conference along," as much as the leader saying, "I'm taking the temperature of my conference." It's more a sign of strength. The leadership saying, "You know, don't even think about challenging me because I can force a majority of my members 
I can basically call a vote of confidence on myself at any moment for any piece of legislation. He was not able to do that for this one. But I don't think, you know, I don't think there's anybody else who thought they could have. And I mean, you just saw a total failure of, a, of an alternative to emerge. I think there are people in there who like, you know, Republicans who like the idea of a weak leader. And that's what they've got now. Why is he such a weak leader? Is Does he not exercise power appropriately like uh, like previous Speakers of the I House, mean, or or I, has the nature know, well, of actually one of the reasons is that is is, is the, the campaign against earmarks, the very successful campaign against earmarks, has really taken away one of leadership's just key tools, which is like which is to say you know maybe you got a you know maybe you're not getting your ideological way, but here's a senior center, you know here's a uh, here's a bridge, here's some jobs, bridge to nowhere, and that and that kind of I mean that that's what earmarks were all about was about doling out you know little sweets to bring legislators along. And, you know, those aren't there. And, they, you know, they're, they're, there's much, the leadership has much more limited tools, although certainly not no tools. And pet projects get passed all the time. But, but they can't, but it's harder for leadership to throw this or that into a bill to bring this specific legislator along. So let me throw this out there. When I, growing up uh, over the years, you always got the sense that the Democratic Party was dysfunctional or at war with itself. Always that they they were unruly that there were there were a lot Democrats in disarray right? exactly Forever. and now and now it's the Republicans who are always disciplined who not only are they the Republicans in disarray but they're showing it so openly and so the one thing about politics when, when something happens once it usually happens a thousand times before they're able to fix it so yeah every day the Republican Party implodes in some new way I mean it's really remarkable and and, and out of control like literally out of control I think a lot of Conservatives think their interest right now is to play to the base and to sort of, and, and not to try to legislate, not to try to get along. And there are these people like Banner in the middle who will fundamentally have to make a deal. And, you know, and it's just, and it's, it's, you know, and I think in some ways everybody's acting out of their own self-interest and that's been trumping the interest of the party. And how much have guys like you or services like you, the 24-hour news cycle, the Twitter cycle, the ability of of individual Congress, members of Congress to communicate with the whole world instantly. How much has that been a factor in changing the dynamics? You know, it feels to me like it's a huge part of the dynamic. I think that's probably your instinct, too. But on the other hand, you know, Democrats have been having this sort of meltdown for years without Twitter. So it's certainly not essential, but it, it helps. I mean, it, I mean, really, Breitbart over the last few days has driven this totally made-up story that there was like that to be it a coup and there was this big sense I think among conservatives that wow just you know like a, like Boehner could be out and we've got a rally behind the opposition and it was sort of a fantasy but it certainly helped and spread on social media and you know with this, not not just an alternative news outlet but really an alternative to the reality based conservative news outlets like National Review and even the Daily Caller who were kind of mocking it we kind of gave hope to this grassroots conservative movement that you know Boehner was about to be unseated and their role was to rally around that notion and that certainly didn't help Boehner keep everybody in line. So Ben, one thing that struck me particularly as strange in this whole saga of the fiscal cliff was the fact that the different players, I and I, I said this a couple minutes ago right before you were on, Joe Biden kind of replaced the president in a way, uh, Harry Reid was kind of out of the negotiations. So you had yeah, Joe Joe Biden negotiating with Mitch McConnell. John, Pretty remarkable, right? I mean, Joe, it's the, is Joe Biden the new president uh, de facto of the? I mean, what's in, 
interesting is that, you know, Biden and McConnell are, are guys who sort of remember back when it was possible to make a deal, who remember a, culture, a Senate culture of deal-making. You know, Barack Obama never served in a, you know, in federal, held federal office at a time when there was anything but totally poisonous relations between the parties. Um, and, and, ba- and, and Boehner with the House Republicans, again, the House has, has for so long been a place where it's total, total partisan war all the time, at least since the 90s. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it was it was interesting to see these two really Senate throwbacks kind of conjure up an earlier era of American politics. I mean, and it's not even that, I mean, I think, you know, Boehner and Obama wanted to make a deal and had tried to make a deal earlier, and Boehner couldn't hold his people. The grand bargain. Like, right, yeah, and I think, you know, in a sense, like, Boehner, like McConnell and Biden, you know, actually knew how to make deals, I mean, in a technical sense. They, they understood the process of figuring this out and hashing it out and sticking to it. In a way that, they, and and they had just much more experience at it, frankly, than either Obama or Boehner. And how does Boehner allow his number two and number three to kind of walk away from it? I mean, just... unbelievable, right? I mean, I you know I think he just really has so little control over what's going on. And you do think that that Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, is accused the conservatives who are his his sort of fellow leaders could have his job if they wanted it. You would think, but you know, legislatures are funny places. Boehner, among other things, is extremely well liked. He's better liked than Eric Cantor by his peers, um, and that you know that counts for something. A lot of conservatives really like the guy, even if they disagree with him deeply. There was a lot of irritation among conservatives on the floor today. There were there were some protest votes cast. You know, sometimes I think Jim Jordan, for instance, a Georgia congressman, was the recipient of a couple of one or two protest votes for. Of conservatives voting, he's very conservative. Conservatives voting for him for speaker, you know. But he voted for Boehner, and I think wasn't particularly pleased that anybody was voting for him. I mean, so I think there is this sense that, you know, that that people aren't gunning, gunning for him the way you know, there were people who hated Newt Gingrich when he was speaker and were eager to knife him. So how do they come to a deal in two months if if none of these personalities can deliver? Harry Reid doesn't seem to be a factor, and. And John Boehner is not as much a factor. He he's not a strong leader, and Barack Obama doesn't seem to know how to negotiate with Congress. Uh, you know, I, Mr. Quester, I think it's quite likely we head right over the edge again, right? Until which gives them cover to to deal. Um, the death ceiling is different than the others because the sequester, the fiscal cliff, these are made up legislative nonsense that the legislators can they created deal. that themselves. Yeah, exactly. These are paper crises. These aren't real crises. The death ceiling is a little different. You know, last time we approached this, America's death got downgraded. Um, and and you know, and and you know, there will there's I mean, all of this stuff has sort of a stunt fictional aspect. But you would you would see federal buildings shutting down. You would see a kind of real consequence that going over the fiscal cliff did not actually have. But that was the fiscal cliff was a, was a terrible metaphor. You can't actually just go over a cliff and keep going. And the death ceiling is more of a real cliff, not a ceiling. Gosh, they're terrible metaphors. Well, I, I can't say I coined them, but uh, maybe you know who did. I think the fiscal cliff was a Ben Bernanke, uh, uh, not necessarily yeah, the guy. It was most recently Ben Bernanke. That's just a funny history dating back to the 40s with people. People have used it in various ways, but it's Ben Bernanke's fault this time around. Uh, okay, so he was, because I, I don't really see him as much of a wordsmith. Yeah. So, so... If you had to assess who won the uh, the fiscal cliff, um, I mean, I think Obama, to the extent you're picking winners and losers, I mean, the Republican, I mean, Boehner. Okay, let's off. assume that everybody's a loser here. 
Yeah, I guess we're right because I mean I think I think the the House Republicans are basically the biggest losers here. Wound up with a deal worse than a deal they could have had at an earlier moment. Obama, the thing Obama didn't get that I think he would have loved is a big deal that basically cleared his legislative table. Like we're going to make a deal that we're going to there aren't going to be more budget fights over the next year. We're going to make a big deal on spending on taxing. We're going to get those issues out of the way, and we're going to spend the rest of the year fighting about you know immigration particularly, and other big legislative items that just aren't going to happen. Or, you know, they're going to be very difficult to do in the context of insane partisan warfare about the death ceiling. And so and so that's something that... Um, it, that, that, that for him is a real defeat, I think. Just it, it limits his second-term agenda in a way that he had, I think he'd hoped to clear the table. How, are the, how is he going to get the Democrats... He was willing to put entitlement reform on the table that would be reforming social security and medicare and medicaid and obviously cost cutting or cost containment yeah by reforming we mean cutting we Cor- mean correct raising, but reform raising, things like raising the retirement age and yes but things. ben ben we call the show spin class for a reason we say reform when instead because cutting yeah, is a bad is word a, i hate that word i never let me i, I uh, try not to let my reporters use the word reform because it all it means is I support this measure. It's my show, my rules, my friend. <laughs> so uh, we are going to how are how is he going to have that fight within the Democratic Party uh, in in two months or whenever that comes to a head? Because it's got to happen. I think he acknowledges it's got to happen. You know, I think there are a lot. There are a lot. Although you know, maybe not a majority of Democrats. But certainly, this is a situation where you're not going to need that many Democrats to peel off, and certainly none in the House. And a few in the Senate to make a majority. And you know, I mean, that was I mean, that one thing that happened this week that you haven't seen a lot of was real bipartisan legislation. You know, something like ninety votes in the Senate, a real bipartisan majority in the House. Um, and I think you know that's that you could imagine entitlement reform going through with a lot of Democratic no votes. So the Democrats essentially are acting as the more responsible party in this case. Um, no, I mean, I, if you think that. Yeah, cutting these programs is responsible. No, I think most Democrats would vote no, but you would, I mean, you need to pick off a half dozen in the Senate. Right. Don't need any in the House. And so it's really, it's really um, Obama negotiating with the Senate, with, with the Senate, sort of moderate, the Senate's moderate Democrats, with people, with people like Ron Wyden, with people who, with the Senate Democrats who are concerned about entitlement spending, are going to be the ones who kind of determine how far these cuts could go. So I want Republicans would obviously have much more deeply. So I want to get your take on two votes. I think what, both of them are, are one of them is obvious, but one of them is not so obvious, at least in my mind. Uh, so I'll give you the easy one first. Marco Rubio voting no. The guy is running for president. That's the only possible interpretation of that vote. It was a, I mean, it was a vote to sort of to to, to be able to say he took a clear in a Republican primary in four years that he took a clear stand. That it turns out his rival Paul Ryan did not. Ah, I mean, it was. It seems to me that was a clear boxing check for 2012. So that you already anticipated. You already anticipated question number two, which is Paul Ryan voting yes, which uh, was definitely a surprise for me. It wasn't just that he voted yes. It was he. He had told other people, people, other members of Republican leadership, the other conservative members of Republican leadership, the uh, the what do they call them? Not the Three Musketeers, but you know, the Young Guns. Cantor um, and McCarthy, they thought Ryan was with them and was going to vote now. And there's this, and I think what John Stanton reported for us is that Ryan seems to have changed his mind at the last minute on this. I kind of think he looks terrible. You know, he looks 
he, I mean, he certainly, not only did he not lead, but he seems not quite even to have followed effectively on this one. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, what he's thinking is, is he, he's looking forward to introducing his own budget later this year, uh, defining real documents that he hopes could be the framework maybe for a big deal or maybe an ideological statement. But he just wants to get out of this this mess and be able to, again, on his own terms, define the budget. So from potentially from Paul Ryan's perspective, this whole thing is a great distraction because it only deals with the immediate problems as opposed to, like, the big problems that he wants to deal with. Basically, yeah, but God, you know, I mean, this guy was the, uh, and I think he wanted to, you know, I think he's also, you know, his, part of his profile, which was chipped away very much during the, um, the campaign, was here's a responsible adult who's, you know, really eager to engage tough issues and deal with tough questions, and they all of that said is a very Washington sense. Um, and on the campaign, he, in fact, like, you know, Rossi High Command decided early on, wow, Paul Ryan and better not be allowed to ever discuss any matters of policy or engage anything in a legitimate or serious or adult way. And that did a lot of damage to the way he was perceived by a very important, at least, constituency in Washington. So that was something that was thrust upon him, or he, he just uh, decided... No, there was just, I mean, you know, they, they decided, they didn't, I mean, understandably, they didn't want the campaign to be about Paul Ryan's plans for cutting Medicare. It just didn't... I mean, that's just, that's so, not a way why, so why pick the guy? I mean, this remains. A I'm, I'm, I mean, this remains a total mystery. I mean, that that was many huge mistakes that campaign. That was everything he was about. Was a, the only thing anybody ever knew him for. It's, I mean, it's. I mean, it's funny. It's, it's both of those guys, right? I mean, Mitt Romney is a guy who had a career as, as a businessman and as governor, and they decided that they could not talk about either of those things. And then they picked a nominee who was known for one thing and one thing only, and decided that uh decided they couldn't talk about that. Or sort of sub Bloomberg, your old boss's advisor, a Bloomberg advisor said to me, kind of marveling, like, like imagine if we tried to run Mike Bloomberg for president and could never talk about Bloomberg LP and could never talk about his time as mayor of New York. Like, what would you do? Very strange thing. Okay, so yeah, as you said, just another mistake on the campaign trail. We'll have to... I, I don't want to continue... I know over the last eight weeks or so, we've kind of uh, pummeled the Romney campaign. So I don't want to continue that. I vowed not to continue that in 2013. Yes, sir. So, uh, no, not at all. I'm glad you opened the door to that, but I'm not going to take the bait. I, 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 I want to just quickly, and because I know we only have you for a couple more minutes, kind of shift gears a little bit. Talk about uh, your experience covering New York and New York politics. Uh, you know what? What? Uh, what are the, some of the things you miss about New York politics? And are you are you still are you still in the game a little bit? Oh, I pay lots of attention. I mean, I, it's tough, for a journalist, it's so different to cover local politics versus national politics. Because national politics, like the people who vote for these candidates in a national election, don't actually know who they are. Don't know them personally. Have kind of often relationships with them that they've kind of gotten from partisan talk radio, or partisan TV channels, or the internet that are just immense caricatures and they're based on and one is a saint and the other is the devil. Um, and, and these beliefs just sort of aren't ever really grounded in reality where it's all about representation. Whereas on, um, you know, the local, local politics, looking very local politics, like, you know, people know the guy and they know funny, they know stories about them. They know they're a human being. And if somebody's corrupt, they, I mean, they, they, they see these legislators and these, Representatives like you know often very multifaceted people, and there's there's a level of reality about about the limitations and the kind of human limitations of politicians in 
you know, in, in a city council race, that there just isn't in the national, on the national stage. So what about uh, covering the Jewish community here in New York, since we, we try and look, give a little uh, Jewish angle to our... Yeah, so I mean, I, you know... I is that one of the things you miss the most? I mean, I've, you know, the Jewish community, fortunately, is very, very, very interested in national politics, so I've kept talking to lots of my New York Jewish sources, um, and I am in with them, because, uh, yeah, you know, come when the, when the sun sets on Saturday, a lot of people are in G-chat trying to figure out what's going on. Um, a lot of <laughs> so, political junkies. So, so, my my G-chat would always light right up. Um, so right after right after it gets dark, immediately your your cell phone starts buzzing or... You know, more my more my I am more, more my your I am yeah, okay yeah. okay um and uh, but, people aren't knocking on your door anymore I imagine less so <laughs> but um but no you know I mean I think Jewish politics has always played a really outsized role in national politics partly because Israel plays an outside role in the way people think about American foreign policy not I think that often the mistake people make is not because the Jewish vote is important because a lot of Americans really care but Israel and the way you think about foreign policy, you know, whether you're kind of a cold-hearted realist or kind of an idealist, often plays out in hate, you know, on American attitudes toward Israel. And so, I don't, so you know, I mean, Chuck Hagel right now is one of the big national stories, and, and his fate is going to be very much determined by a debate over his views on Israel. So, it's funny, uh, the Chuck Hagel phenomenon, uh, ha- I've had a lot of conversations with people about Chuck Hagel. And my feeling here is I, there are a lot of reasons to oppose Chuck Hagel. I don't know why it had to be a pro-Israel issue. Uh, I don't think Chuck Hagel is particularly loved amongst his colleagues in the in the Senate. I'm not sure exactly why Obama is so interested in nominating him, if he is. And just his his views on so many things are, are kind of way out there. Um, you know, he's definitely not in the mainstream of thought in the Republican Party. So if you're looking for a bipartisan pick, he just doesn't kind of fit. No, I think Obama wants to make a statement about foreign policy. I mean, I think but what's the, reason, the statement? The reason, I, he, isolationism? I mean, he's, he's, yeah. I mean, I even though I doubt they would call it isolationism, but it kind of, you know, I think they call it progressive realism. But I mean, I think... Uh, progressive realism. That, That's better spin than me. Specifically that they don't want to go to war with Iran and they don't want a military strike on Iran. And and appointing Hegel, who's been clearer than most that he, about his view on that, is sort of a line in the sand on that. But we're issue. talking in about a way, the de- in, a way, in a way to fight that issue out, and I think that's that's why we're talking about the Department of that. Defense, though, not the Department of State. Oh, for sure. But I just think like the appointment of Hegel is a way to have that fight, and I think that's what Obama has decided he wants to do with that is to say fascinating to a statement about Iran. Yeah, fascinating. So Ben, I know we got to wrap up, but I want to I want to just uh, talk about the outgoing Secretary of State, who's kind of been uh, on the mend for the last couple of weeks, but. Uh, yeah. Certainly, uh, Hillary Clinton. I, I think, by all accounts, uh, it has been looked at as a rather ex- exceptionally good uh, Secretary of State. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, everybody's I mean, really a scary, very scary situation with her health. Um, I mean, I think some seems like they're lucky they caught it. You know, everybody's hoping she'll get better fast. Seems like she's starting to mend. Um, you know, there are two kinds of Secretaries of State that succeed, and one is one is sort of Jim Baker model, somebody who's so close to the President of the United States that foreign leaders know that what they that they can do deals because people trust that they speak they speak for the president. And the other kind is somebody who's a star and who can, by the force of their own personality and will kind of project American values in a very effective way, who can and you know, and who can bring 
who, who, who you know, important, powerful people want to meet, want to deal with, and that's what Hillary Clinton has been. Um, I mean, I think she also, you know, took this moment where people are starting to talk about women's and girls' rights, particularly in the Muslim world, as not like a soft humanitarian issue, but as more a foreign policy issue. Not, you know, and, and, and started to, and became kind of a symbol of that. I suspect that's what we'll see more of after she leaves office from her. So, uh, aside from the Benghazi thing, you think that will tarnish her, her legacy as, or you think I mean, she'll kind of go out as a... Uh, I mean, that was a real catastrophe. Real ca- obviously. I mean, and that was, you know, that was certainly, um, the bus stops with her on that. It's hard to say anything else. It only doesn't stop with Susan Rice. Um... But on the, I mean, on the other hand, you know, but it was also a very complicated situation. It was something where the ambassador, you know, Chris Stevens, one of the reasons that he was so beloved and thought to be so great at his job was because, was partly because he was a real risk taker. You know, he was very hostile to the idea of kind of swarming security that American diplomatic outposts had become known for. So it's just, I mean, it's a very complicated situation, I think. Okay, Ben. F- Really fascinating conversation. I'm hoping that we can have you uh, once again. I want to just throw one parting question or for comment out there is uh, I think that, uh, you know, just to get your reaction to this, I think that Al Jazeera is buying current TV just to get Elliot Spitzer off the air. I, why do you, what makes you think that Elliot Spitzer would be a bad fit for Al Jazeera? That's, uh, that was the answer. That's the answer. That's the answer that I was expecting then. Hey, Ben, Ben Smith, editor in chief of Buzzfeed. Uh, really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for the keen insight and punditry. And, uh, hopefully we'll have you, uh, once again and, uh, best of luck to you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on, Michael. Good luck to you. Thank you. This is spin class talking politics here with Michael Fragan. I'm welcoming to the studio, Moshe Friedman, a political pundit commentator and, uh, consultant from Bar Park. And, uh, he is uh, here joining us, uh, going to give give, shed some light on uh, some of our more local issues, but also on the phone. And Moshe, welcome. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, listeners. And on the phone, we have Josh Nathan Cases from The Forward, staff writer, political reporter, and he certainly a observer of the political scene, particularly in the Orthodox community. Josh, welcome to Spin Class. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Josh, uh, you wrote a really interesting article this past week about the Jewish dynamic or upsetting the apple cart, if you don't mind me using that metaphor, because uh, we like to use lots of cliches on this show, is uh, <laughs> is uh, with the Jews, uh, Simcha Felder and Jeff Klein and uh, the half-Jew, uh, David Carlucci. I hope nobody's offended by that. I just, you know, I think it's more accurate. Uh, ZK, I can say half-Jew, right? Okay. <laughs> Fine, just checking. Uh, the the I don't want any problems with the FCC. So uh, <laughs> David Carlucci uh, kind of uh, going their own way and you know forming this uh, you know this coalition government in the in the New York State Senate. And you you d- drilled down on the Jewish aspect of it. With- yeah, I, mean, I think it's important to to say up front here that, that you know there's no coordination between Felder and Klein. You know these, these are two separate phenomena that happen to happen at the same time, but. Felder very specifically did not join Klein's IDC, which is sort of this um, uh, caucus that uh, Klein and five other members of the, you know, formerly Democratic caucus have created uh, or become a part of, and now have allied themselves with the Republicans. Felder split separately, and you know, it seems uh, I think it's clear 
as well that Felder is driven by very different concerns here, right? I mean, he represents the so-called you know super Jewish districts. He represents Borough Park, um, Midwood, uh, Orthodox communities. He's an Orthodox guy, and he was very clear, you know, when he talked about why he was doing this, um, that he was interested in the sort of services and, and government assistance that that community relies on. Klein, I think, is uh, you know he, he represents um, parts of Riverdale, parts of Southern Westchester, parts of the Bronx. There are some Jews there. It's not an Orthodox community, or it's not an overwhelmingly Orthodox community. Um, and uh, it seems from you know the people I spoke with that the analysis is that this was about um, you know uh, power, which he certainly has now. Absolutely, but the, you know, we we have seen over the years a lot of strange things in Albany, and somehow a lot of reporters felt that this was amongst the strangest. This uh, this whole situation. It's pretty weird, right? I mean, you know, we, we've uh, there's no longer you know three men in a room. That was that was the Albany cliche for as long as I've been around, which hasn't been that long, but but for you know decades before that, and all of a sudden there are four men in the room. Uh, sort of changes the paradigm a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think, uh, what What do you make of the the reaction that might come? I, I The forward has you know, traditionally covered the Jewish community quite intensely as far as, uh, you know, some of the demographic changes. And I think that that, what do you think the reaction will be in some of these areas amongst Jews who are traditionally and reliably Democratic voters, who they right. might, who they might, will there be a backlash? Will people turn around and say, hey, you know, there have been some rumblings about, you know, amongst other politicians from Demo- traditional Democrats in Klein's district, like play- like in you know some of the clubs in Riverdale, um, you think that, that can- that's going to be a uh, militant uh, column against him? I mean, I, you know, I think the demographic question is really interesting here. The, you know, there was this, I'm sure you remember in June, the Federation came out with a study of the Jews in New York City and a couple other counties. I mean, apparently 40% of the Jews in New York City are Orthodox now. And more than half of the Jews in New York City are either Orthodox or Russian-speaking. And I sort of put those two groups together because these are both, uh, you know, sectors of the Jewish community that are um, more conservative and are not, you know, ideologically democratic, uh, speaking broadly. Obviously, as we know, you know, Orthodox Jews, many of them often vote in blocks, and these blocks are very instrumentalist in the way they decide where they're going to with their support, and uh, these are communities that have a lot of needs uh, in terms of government government aid and government programs, and they often vote in the direction that they think is going to help them get that aid. I, I think that in Felder's case, um, he has made the calculation that he his community is behind them to the group, the uh, to the extent that he can he can run this risk. Risk. I think Klein is different. I don't think we can entirely talk about Klein in the same you know, framework of the democratic the, of the demographic shift. I don't think that. Uh, I mean, I think this this uh, real you know orthodox turn demographically in the Jewish community is really focused in Brooklyn um, and the community in the Bronx that we're talking about. Uh, uh, you know, the Jews that are there are, are not this sort of growing community of orthodox that I've been that, that we've been seeing. Uh, and I I suspect that Klein will get some. Some backlash. I think it's pretty early to say, and I also think that you know, uh, if Klein brings home, uh, you know, becomes given his his power here, he's going to be in a position to 
you know, do good work for his district, and maybe they'll see that. Um, but, you know, that's still a long way off. He was just reelected, so uh, he's got a lot of time. So you've also covered uh, the school board conflict in Rockland County, and I know that's yeah. kind of uh, uh, that's the East Ramapo School District, which uh, for our listeners out there, that is a school district where the vast, vast majority of the parents send their children to private schools, uh, as uh, mostly yeshivas, and as opposed to public school, one of one of two such districts in in New York State, and uh, where. Or actually, I well, there might be more than two, but we'll we'll throw that out there. Uh, the I think that there has been you you've certainly seen a a shift in attitudes there amongst the amongst the Orthodox community becoming very politically organized and uh, certainly not certainly not necessarily uh, traditionally Democrat either. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I haven't really thought about how that particular issue intersects with this development. I'm not sure that it does. Uh, I, I mean, the people I spoke with said that uh, Carlucci is not seen as having a particularly strong relationship with, with New Square and Muncie. Um, but, I, you know, I think that's fascinating. And I think in terms of the demographic question, you're right that it's really only there and maybe in Lawrence that we've seen this issue come up. But, I mean, I can't imagine that it won't become, you know, something that we see more and more often. I mean, you know, that, that it, 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 there's no clear moral answer here, right? On the one hand, uh, the the private school community has a right to be elected in this district uh, to run and to vote and is their tax dollars. On the other hand, um, you know, if you're a parent in a district where all of the members of the school board don't send their kids to the district, that might uh, be something troubling to you. Uh, and, and, and I think that uh, this particular district has had a lot of budget problems and it's, and it's pretty troubled, and uh, it, it's just been fascinating. The other fascinating thing is the kind of attention this has gotten. I mean, when I started writing about this a couple of years ago, um, uh, the local paper uh, up there, uh, the Journal News, had written about it a bunch. Um, but there was really not much else. In the past few years, the Journal News and the Forward have uh, written a lot, but it started to get coverage in the Times and elsewhere. And I think this is something that, you know, as the Orthodox community grows and becomes more powerful and you know, more skilled at, at wielding its political power. Uh, it's the sort of issue that's going to come up more and more often. Let me ask you a question, this motion. In, in Rockland County, are there any other place that the, Jew, the Orthodox Jews are trying to take over? And I understand that they're trying to keep their taxes lower. But isn't the job of a school board really to make sure that the children in the public school gets, they, gets their education? Isn't that the first job? And then they move on to make that spending cuts the way it has to be? Or you really feel that people could go out and run based on we're going to simply cut the tax dollars? I mean, I, you know, I, I, don't, you know the, the, I don't know what they're running on exactly. You know, their campaigning is, uh, my understanding, that in Yiddish, so it's hard to say. But, but I don't think it's fair uh, to say that these, School board members are just interested in cutting taxes. Um, I mean, on the one hand, first of all, uh, the the school board is able to drive um, legitimate uh, public money to uh, private school students. There's lots of um, special education money that can go to private schools, transportation money, um, uh, you know, various various kinds of public funding that the school boards are able to drive to the public schools. So that is one thing that they are, another reason beyond 
taxes uh, that they're on that board. And don't forget that's, about special education, which is right. A big yeah, sorry, no, I think, yeah, special ed, and and and, um, and that's a huge amount of money, and that's very huge. very important. I mean, you know, these private school students are entitled to federal special education money, and you know that's part of uh, what the school board is supposed to do. Um, I also think that there are Orthodox school board members who are very interested in the quality of the public school education, or at least that's what they've told me. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of what the school board is supposed to be doing, I mean, you know, they're elected and they run and the voters decide who they want to be on the school board. And uh, hopefully the people who are being elected are being honest with the voters about what their interests are. But, you know, it's not as though there's one proper way to, you know, there's not, there's no one says like, this is what a school board's um, core responsibilities are. There are things that the school board needs to do. And uh, there are people who choose, you know, voters who choose who to sit on, who can sit on that school board. So Josh, but you're right. And it's very fraught, you know? Absolutely. Look, it's a, it's a very delicate situation. Clearly, I think when people envisioned uh, how, how, how these, uh, school boards were going to go, they probably didn't envision a situation where most residents, particularly in suburbs, were not going to send their kids to the public schools. But public schools have always been the kind of the anchor of uh, suburban life it's to, still, a, to a large degree. It's still better the way it's set up over there. And you have once in a while a district that is being controlled by parents that don't go in school. I've met today the president of the Parents Association of New York City, and they're over here much more frustrated that the community, the school boards were completely abolished and it was given over to mayoral control because they have zero say in how they educate their kids. Over here, it's everything a mayor's policy, and he could simply go out and do citywide, which we all know that in education, you cannot say people of children of this school deserve the same rights as children children of other schools because they need different issues and it's not being addressed by the mayor on a school per basis. Well, that's why your taxes are, your property taxes are so much lower there in Brooklyn. So uh, we'll take, but Josh, I want to just ask you uh, more nationally for a second. You've covered a lot of the right wing uh, of uh, Jewish politics, if you will, or at least the, the Republican, uh, some of the, uh, some of the politics on the Republican side, ZOA, RJC, Sheldon Adelson, and the like, and uh, the Josh Mandel race. So, yeah. uh, give it, give us a take on on the whether Republicans were able to move the needle in the Jewish community. That that is another very fraud question. I mean, uh, it's funny. Well, know, we only ask the tough questions. We don't ask any <laughs> easy ones. It's funny. I mean, within uh, a couple of days after the election was over, you know, there were sets of numbers from the Republicans and from the Democrats that were different. Uh, my colleague, Natan Guman, did a story about about the various uh, sets of... I'm sorry, sorry, I'm talking about the numbers in terms of how Jews voted right, uh, sure. nationally. Um, so the RJC had one set, the NJDC or an NJDC affiliate organization had another set. Um, and, you know, I think, I think just speaking not about those specific numbers, but generally... Uh, it, it looked to, to us that as though um, the needle nationally didn't move so much, uh, a little bit down, certainly, but perhaps not as far down, I'm sorry, down in terms of Democratic support, uh, just support for Democrats, or for the for Obama. You know, um, Carl, Carl Rove in the Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, I, I think it talked about uh, one success being 
and he mentioned it a little bit in uh, a line. One success being having uh, that Mitt Romney did better amongst Jews or Obama did worse amongst Jews. And that was kind of I, and I was kind of surprised in the grand scheme of thing of the whole of the whole election. You know, that's what they teased out was uh, Karl Rove was thinking about the fact that they moved like two percentage points, three percentage, four percentage points amongst the Jews. Nothing to d- that determined the election, obviously. Right. Yeah, that's very funny. I, I missed that. I mean, uh, right. If, you know, it certainly certainly moved a little bit, but it was expected to move more. Uh, um, I think both sides said that they, you know, were were successful. Uh, it, it strikes me as a little bit meaningless. Like, you know, this is... <laughs> The margin of errors, margins of error here are, are large. Uh, the differences are not great, um, and when we're talking about a community that's increasingly dispersed throughout the country, uh, a few percentage points doesn't seem to me like a particularly big deal. Um, but you know, uh, on the other hand, maybe Carl Rove's right. He certainly knows more about uh, the numbers <laughs> than I do. Listen, when you lose, you look for any anything to get. He got some win, he'll take it. And, and, and Josh Mandel uh, of Ohio was certainly a, a darling of the Republican Jewish. Is there such a thing as a Republican Jewish establishment? I'll throw that out there. The Republican <laughs> Jewish establishment. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of high hopes for him, and he, he fell way short. He's an interesting guy. Look, I don't think he's going anywhere. He's, he's young. Um, he uh, has a good backstory. Um, I think a lot of people... And he's reaching back to when I did the profile of him a number of months ago. But I think a lot of people were surprised that he started running for Senate so quickly after he won the state treasurer race. Um, and that probably weighed against him a little bit. I mean, he didn't even complete a full term. Uh, um, also, not only is he young, but he, he looks really young. I mean, he looks like a, like a kid. And, and I think, you know, that sort of... Uh, uh, quick turnaround from the statewide office to national office and his relative age probably didn't help. But, look, he excited a lot of Republicans. He raised a good amount of money. He put up a real fight to an incumbent. And uh, I'm sure we'll be, or I suspect we'll be seeing him again. Well, Josh, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Josh Nathan Cases from The Forward. Hopefully we'll have you again uh, in the very near future. And uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan, uh, my guest in the studio, Moshe Friedman. And we are live on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JMNAM.org. And uh, Moshe, we're expecting a, a big year in politics, I imagine. We're gearing up for not just uh, the end of 2012, but also to looking forward to 2013, the state of the state is upon us uh, coming up on Wednesday in Albany. Will I be seeing you over there? You never know. We'll have to. We have to keep these. Th- I don't want to tell my whereabouts to too many people. I'm looking forward to go over there, and we'll be looking around. We'll see some new faces over there. Quite a few new faces. Oh yeah, and the interesting thing is we discussed before with I think it was Ben or this guy that we there's going to be a foreman in the room. But what I'm interested to see is really it's not so much the power is not in. The leaders, the power is much more on the staff. Do you think that the staff is equally divided between the Republicans and the Independent Democrat Caucus, or it's really still four men but three people controlling the staff and having the power in the state? Those are questions that certainly remain to be answered. I have to say that the I would have to imagine that the given the fact that in the governing coalition. There are 31 and possibly 32 
uh, Republican senators, if you include Simplefelder, and then there are five from the IDC. The the numbers, I would think, 32 versus five. If Again, if you're counting uh, uh, Assemblyman or Senator-elect Amadori, who you know, potentially may have won. We don't know everything. Like a good New York race, it's in court. But uh, if we count him, I, I think the numbers have to say that there's going to be more Republican staff, plus the fact there were Republican staff beforehand. So some of them are going to stay. So I guess it's really still a three-man in the room with a, a just on the Senate floor that they're sharing some power. I, I don't know. I, I would anticipate some big things from Jeff Klein. I, I don't think he, uh, he doesn't strike me as a shrinking violet, uh, the guy who's going to sit in the sides. He, he wants to be right in there. He's most probably the biggest winner of this of this particular coalition because, like this, he's really a player. Do you think he gained now more than he was last time? Last time around, he had the same thing. What was his position last time? He was the, the deputy majority leader the last time around, but uh, but I there was a lot of bad blood to be certain certain members of the uh, of the Democratic conference and and Senator Klein. So I think that the I think it was a very interesting move for him to go his own way and kind of control the balance of power. Well, look forward to see what they're going to do. It's going to be a very interesting year. The mayoral race are starting. The all the city, all the city races except uh, except the controller. It looks like there's no race over there, but all the other things are. going You don't be- think someone's going to pop into that controller race? Is that uh, we're we're just giving it to? Scott Stringer, what happens if John Liu decides he doesn't want to run for mayor, wants to stay in office? That will be interesting because I met John Liu last week and uh, he's very confident. First of all, he's definitely running for mayor as of this particular moment, but he's very confident that he's going to be vindicated by the feds pretty shortly. As you know, the court case of his helper that was arrested for allegedly campaign Campaign fines, campaign laws is going to be next month. So if they're not going to have anything against him next month, and he's going to be vindicated, you never know. People like a people like a person that was uh, harassed by the government, and he became clean. He might have a good shot again on his mayoral race. I think it's still a very open race. But I asked that same question all along: Why doesn't he simply turn around and run for controller? And the answer. I don't have no answer. He tells he's running for mayor. Well, you know, politicians have very, very small egos, so we both we both know that. So yeah. well, I remember while Scott Stringer was running for mayor all along, and he said till the last day that he's running for mayor, and I guess he changed his mind. Well, you have to keep it going, otherwise you can't raise any money. There's that's that's for sure. Lewis finished raising money. He at this time is the ah. next filing, which is January 11. He'll have his filing. That he raised the max, and he said next. time- I hope is- there are no issues with it this time around. He still got to keep the last one. Okay, so Moshe, actually, there's going to be an election even before the 2013 elections. The the mayor has designated a city council election for February the 19th, I believe, which is for the seat being vacated by James Sanders Jr., a new state senator from Queens, and uh, that seat includes uh, Southeast Queens, uh, including Far Rockaway. So that'll be an interesting race, I imagine. That would be an interesting race and a Jewish race because the Jewish community of Farakaway will have a big say in who is going to be that councilman. And let's do some information on that and try to get some people on your show that 
You could get information that that race is going to be February nineteenth, February Tuesday, February nineteenth. Very very short time from now, folks. So keep that on your calendar. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan. We've been talking politics for the past hour. Moshe Friedman here in the studio. ZK in the control room. Thursday night extravaganza here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Charlie Harari with the Book of Life following us. Thank you very much for joining us.